0: As Holly said, we're in Joshua chapter 9 this morning. I hope you guys are excited to look at this text, and I'm excited to bring this word before you this morning. Uh, The title of my message this morning is, Whatever Seems Good and Right in Your Sight. Whatever Seems Good and Right in Your Sight. And uh, to start off, I want to talk about an experience that I had back in 2013. Uh, So back in 2013, um, I had a decision to make. I was at that time working as a teacher at a local high school here in Gainesville, And as the year came to a close, I realized that I didn't want to go back into the classroom and be a normal classroom teacher anymore. So I looked around at the school and kind of like looked at what the needs were that they had at that time. And I realized that I wanted to take an opportunity to impact more students than just the students that were in my classroom. And so as a consequence of that, I wanted to work with the guidance department and help the kids that were struggling academically. And so I tossed this idea out to the principal, to the superintendent, I just said, hey, you know, like, I feel like the school needs this. Um, And so what do you guys think about this? Do you uh, want uh, me to kind of walk into this role as opposed to being a normal classroom teacher at that time? Now, I realized that that was a long shot and very unlikely that they would say yes to that. So I kind of hedged my bets a bit. And what I did was I went to Jacksonville uh, to a private school up there and I applied for a position there. Um, And to my surprise, I got the job on the spot. And so I had this opportunity between these two choices to make at that time. And there was a big dilemma in my life at that time. I really enjoyed the school where I was at in Gainesville. I really wanted to see my students who were freshmen at the time matriculate through high school and graduate. And so I had to figure out which of these two places would I go to, which of these two places uh, would I work at. And so after the 2013 graduation ceremonies, after post-planning, after we get through all of those things, I did my end-of-the-year meeting with both the principal and the superintendent. And the morning of that meeting, I just could not sleep at all. I woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and I prayed more earnestly about that than I have anything in my life up until that point and even beyond. I was so earnest in prayer. I really wanted to understand what God's will was. And by the time I finally got ready to get dressed and go into that meeting, I felt like I had received an answer from the Lord as to which place I was supposed to work at, as to which school I needed to choose. And so the pursuit of the Lord that I was absorbed in that morning yielded the answer that I needed to be able to understand and discern his will. And my question for you this morning is, how do you make decisions? You come to a crossroad. You have to choose which way to go. How do you determine which direction to go in? You see, the answer to that question is critical this morning as we look at this text um, in Joshua chapter 9. We're going to look at a decision that Joshua and the elders had to make. Were they going to fall prey to deception, or were they going to pursue wisdom? Were they going to be rash in their promises, or were they going to seek God's direction? Read with me Joshua chapter 9, verses 3 through 6 again. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning, and went and made ready provisions, and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, Worn out and torn and mended, with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. My first point this morning is the deception of the Gibeonites, the deception of the Gibeonites. My first sub-point is, let's do a little bit of background and do a little recap on where we've been so far in the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua, in general, recounts the second part of God's greatest work of redemption in the Old Testament. The first part was his freeing his people from Egyptian slavery. And now this second part is bringing his people into the promised land and finally giving them rest. God gave the Israelites very specific instructions about what they should do when they entered this land to possess it. Let's look at those instructions in Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting in verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Gerusites and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashtarim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him, he will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. God was. Crystal clear his mission for the people of Israel. Now it was up to Joshua and the other leaders of Israel to execute God's plan. They battled Ai, as we talked about last week, and they were defeated. And after consulting the Lord, they realized that Ahan's disobedience was the reason for their failure. And after destroying Ahan and everything that he had, they battled again with Ai, and this time they were victorious. Afterwards, Joshua renewed God's covenant with the people and he read every single word of the book of the law before the people uh, that Moses had written. And after this, they seemed primed for continued success and tremendous blessing in the future. But it is often when we are the most comfortable that we let our guard down. And so my subpoint point next, next point, subpoint B is the Gibeonite plot, the Gibeonite plot. You see, after the Israelites defeated Ai, all the kings who were beyond the Jordan joined together to create this confederacy to destroy the Israelites. That's what we see in those first couple chapters, uh chapters, first couple of verses of chapter 9. They hoped that their combined strength would be sufficient to defeat Joshua and Israel. But what they didn't understand was the principle that if God is for you, he is more than the world against you. Romans 8 verses 31 through 39. But the Gibeonites decided not to join this evil confederacy. Instead, they decided to come up with a plot to trick the Israelites into sparing them from destruction, which we saw God clearly told them to do. The Gibeonites acted with cunning, the word says in verse 4. They came up to the camp in worn out clothing and worn out provisions, and they gave the appearance of having come from a very long journey, from a distant place. The Gibeonites lied and said that they came from a distant country to make a covenant with the Israelites. Initially, the Israelites realized that there may be something going on here. So they asked a couple probing questions to get to the bottom of what was going on. But these Hivites, these Gibeonites, lied to them. They mixed a little bit of truth with a lie. And they said that they had heard about the name of the Lord God and all that he did in Egypt and all that he had done with the peoples between Egypt and where they were. They knew that the Lord had power, and they talked about that power and all of the victories that the Israelites had had up until that point. They displayed to the Israelites their, their dry and crusty bread, uh, their busted wineskins, their worn out sandals, and the Israelites believed their story. They believed that they had come from beyond the land of Canaan. And what they were doing was they were walking by sight and not by faith. They believed themselves to be more than capable of figuring this out on their own without any need to consult. The Lord. You may be asking yourself, man, like, like, how are these leaders deceived? Like, how did they get to this point where they just were tricked into this decision? And there's two reasons for that. The first reason is because the Gibeonites looked like the real deal, they were authentic looking on the outside. It certainly seemed like they were from a faraway land. The Gibeonites took great pains to pull off this deception. You know, they could have won an Oscar for their performance. So authentic-looking were they. And surely the Israelites thought that, well, because they looked the part, they must be the real deal. And since they were wise enough in their own eyes to figure this out, why bother God? Why seek his counsel when they were more than capable of figuring this out on their own? And that doesn't ever happen to you, does it? you ever just do things without consulting the Lord? without asking for his direction first? Do you make decisions without his guidance or trust your wisdom and your discernment to just figure things out? How has that worked out for you? You always make the right decision? Is your counsel without flaw? You always make the right call? You see, what they probably thought was this was too small of a thing to bring before the Lord. Why bother him with this small delegation of people seeking peace terms? But even though this thing seems too little and maybe even too trivial to bother God with, there is nothing too trivial for the Lord. Psalm 139 verse 1 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, and it is high. I cannot attain it. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. David says that there is nothing too trivial for the Lord. Your every thought, he has considered it before you think it and before it comes out of your mouth. There is nothing too small for God. You see, he cares about every little thing and he wants to be involved in every detail of our lives. Consequently, We should bring even the small things before the Lord. He can be trusted with every decision. It appears as though Joshua forgot the first leadership lesson that he learned under Moses in Exodus 17. You see, this passage recounts the story of when Aaron and Hur held up Moses' hands while Joshua and the people of Israel fought against Amalek. When Moses' hands were up, the people prevailed. And whenever his hands dropped, the Israelites were beaten back. Joshua won that day because God was on his side. He won because they were totally submitted to the Lord. You see, it it wasn't their strength or their wisdom or their battle prowess that caused them to win that battle. It was entirely the hand and the power of God that gave them victory. And in like manner, at this moment, when these Gibeonites come to them and they need to figure out what's going on, what they should have done was immediately turn to the Lord, that Lord who had given them so many victories up until this point. They needed to turn to him and seek his guidance for this request. They allowed deception to fool them. Ray Ortlund has said these words, we cannot deceive God. Twice in the Acts, God is called the heart knower. Acts 1 verse 24, 15 verse 8. But we can deceive ourselves. Here are four differences between deceit and honesty in our hearts. One, a deceitful heart doesn't know it's sin because it doesn't want to know. But an honest heart is saying, bring it on. Two, a deceitful heart notices how well a sermon applies to someone else. But an honest heart is too concerned about itself to judge another. Three, a deceitful heart, when it isn't growing, blames its inertia on hardship or its church or even on God himself. But an honest heart says, it's my fault. I need to get in. Four, a deceitful heart delays response. It says, I'll get around to it even soon, but I can't right now. An honest heart puts God first. Delayed obedience is a way of saying, I'm setting the terms. I am Lord. But an honest heart says, Lord, whatever you want right now. An honest heart says with the old hymn, the dearest idol I have known Whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. I appreciate Ray Ortland's words there. May we have not deceitful hearts, but honest hearts before the Lord. We sang earlier that whenever darkness hides his face, I trust on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. You see, we need God to lead us. We need to trust him and not seek our own wisdom and discernment. We need his grace, as that song says. Our anchor will hold if we trust him. He is faithful. We should seek the Lord and allow his will in our path to become clear. My second point is this, a foolish covenant established. Joshua 9 verse 14 says, So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them, At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and Cheroth and Bethroth and kerim Jerem, But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. And again, you may be asking yourself, Why and how were Israel's leaders deceived? I already told you the first reason was because the Gibeonites looked apart. The they looked authentic on the outside. But the second reason, which is actually the key to this passage, is right there in verse 14. They did not seek the counsel of the Lord. And it's so amazing how this little sentence is kind of tucked away here in this passage. And it's a little sentence with massive implications. It reminds me of Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, which says these words. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. When you read those words, God knew, that should be the key to this section of the Bible and the key to this passage in Exodus. You see, those two little words God knew indicated to us that God knew what was going on, and he was about to act. He wasn't just standing idly by, just letting evil happen. He was watching, he was waiting, and he was going to save his people. He was going to intervene in this situation. And in like manner, Joshua tells us this little phrase in verse 14 of this passage. He says that the leaders did not ask counsel from the Lord. And that kind of makes sense to us, right? Everything was going well. They were experiencing victory after victory. They didn't need to seek God's counsel because they were doing just fine on their own. And we do that too. When things are going well, and everything is prosperous, and everything's going smooth, we just lean back and kick up our feet and say, God, I got this. I'm fine. I'm okay. So often we we turn to God in our distress, and we totally miss him in our prosperity. You see, we miss God when things are going well. Man, do not miss God in your blessings. God wants to use you and to be with you and to be involved in your life in all of the good times just as much as we turn to Him when things are difficult and bad. And this passage reminds us that the greatest priority in spiritual leadership is prayer. By forgetting to pray, Joshua exposed the people to the potential danger of false idolatrous worship the Gibeonites were Canaanites who worshiped idols and in general that type of exposure to false worship will lead the Israelites astray time after time after time in the future Christian women speaker Nancy DeMoss has written these words I am convinced that prayerlessness one is a sin against God first Samuel 12 23 two is direct disobedience to the command of Christ Watch and pray, Matthew 26, verse 41. 3. is direct disobedience to the word of God. Pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5:17. 4. Makes me vulnerable to temptation. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Matthew 26, verse 41. 5. Expresses independence, no need for God. 6. Gives place to the enemy. It makes me vulnerable to his schemes. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, Daniel chapter 10. Seven, results in powerlessness. Eight, limits and defines my relationship with God. Nine, hinders me from knowing his will, his priorities, his direction. And 10, forces me to operate in the realm of the natural, what I can do versus the supernatural, what he can do. 11, Leaves me weak, harried, and hassled. 12. Is rooted in pride, self-sufficiency, laziness, and lack of discipline. 13. Reveals a lack of real burden and compassion for others. Truly, prayerlessness leaves us spiritually weak. And God was very clear. His words to Moses when he said in Exodus 23, verses 23 through 33 When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God. He will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. When Joshua, and the leaders of Israel, what they needed to do in that moment was to pray. Pray for God's help and his leading. They should have sought the Lord so that they would not be able to fall into false worship. And next week, when Rene preaches before us, he's going to go into great detail about prayer. So hopefully you guys are looking forward to that. I know I am for sure. They needed to look at prayer. They needed to examine the Lord's heart to see what his uh, direction would be. And this Gibeonite strategy is so frequently a strategy used by the enemy against God's people. That prowling lion, the devil, he wants to destroy us, and he's been using this Gibeonite strategy for millennia. What you're going to see is that the Gibeonites would be punished for their deception by Joshua by becoming the cutters of wood and the drawers of water for the house of God. They were going to be given access to the most sacred places. And the most strategic place of worship and devotion to God would be pagans, infidels, false idolatrous worshipers of foreign gods. This Gibeonite strategy has been used by the devil for a very long time. Jesus spoke of this. He spoke of this in Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, Jesus talks about the parable of the weeds. And in verses 24 through 30, and in the explanation of those verses in verses 36 through 43, our Lord describes how the enemy plants weeds along with good grain so that they both grow up together. And in many ways, they're totally indistinguishable one from another, and they're inseparable. The pretenders, Jesus is saying in this verse, look exactly like the sheep. It's difficult to tell a true believer from a false one. And this is the enemy's strategy to deceive God's people time and time again. There are always wheat among the weeds. Even in this gathering and in every gathering of believers, there are always weeds and wheat growing together that look indistinguishable one from another. These Pagans, these infidels, these people who are totally false worshipers of a different God will be strategically placed right in the middle of the place where they honor the Lord and where the altar will be held before the Lord. And the only way to combat this deception is through prayer. It's through seeking the Lord and turning to him. Never trust your own judgment apart from Christ's counsel. If there is doubt, wait. Seek God's face and his leading. He will lead you into the path that you should choose for everything in life. Spurgeon said this about prayer. When you stand before men, ask little and expect less. But when you stand before God, ask much and expect more. And believe that he is able to do for you exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or think. That's the type of God that we rely on, that we trust in, that we know. Seek the Lord. My third point is this. Mercy extended to the undeserving. Mercy extended to the undeserving. Joshua 9, verse 22. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel. And they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. The people of Israel were shocked when they got to these cities of the Gibeonites and they were there ready for battle. And they couldn't touch them at all, which is not what they had done with any of the other places in the land of Canaan up until this point. Not a single hair of the head of any person who was a Gibeonite was touched. And the leaders of Israel... They had circumvented Moses' instruction when they promised these Gibeonites that they would not make war with them. And so the congregation was very upset. But despite them being upset, they still listened to their leaders and they did not attack a single Gibeonite. They were righteously upset. The leaders of Israel approached the people and said that they had made a promise to God, uh, to the God of Israel, that they would not attack these Gibeonites. And just because they messed up the first time does not give them an excuse to make a second mistake. You see, just because they blew it the first time doesn't allow them to blow it this second time. Two wrongs don't make a right. They took God's name into covenant and they made a promise that they would not break that oath regardless of the consequences the second time. They had a high view of the name of God. And they knew that God's name was more precious than anything in the entire world. And they would not treat taking his name lightly. They made a promise that they would make a covenant with them and that they would not destroy them. And they were going to fulfill that promise this second time. Monty Roberts grew up around horses in California. His father was a horse trainer and Monty was riding before he learned how to walk. This was during the heyday of the Western movies, and as a child, Monty rode horses in movies, often as a stunt double for child actors. He later got into rodeos and horse shows and earned a reputation as a great horseman. Roberts always dreamed of being a horse trainer himself, and with a wife and a couple of kids to support, he figured it was time to get serious, so he went into the business. In spite of his reputation as a great rider, Roberts was an inexperienced trainer, and he had trouble getting clients. He only had four horses to train, which wasn't bringing in enough money to support his family. So Roberts wasn't sure what he was going to do when an opportunity presented itself for him to become an apprentice of Don Dodge, who was the most well-known and well-respected trainer in that area. And he was told to bring two of his horses with him. After 10 weeks, the apprenticeship ended, and Roberts met with Dodge. One of the horses he had brought with him was named Panama Buck. Dodge told Roberts that when he got home, he should call the horse's owner, Lawson Williams, and tell him that he was wasting his money having Roberts train the horse because the horse was never going to amount to anything. Roberts was understandably reluctant to do this, as that would eliminate a quarter of his already meager income. When he asked Dodge why he should do this, Dodge responded that the most important thing he could do was always tell owners the truth about their horses, and if he did this, he would soon get more than enough uh, business to replace that loss. Roberts went home and did as instructed. But Williams didn't take the news very well. He responded by berating Robert, screaming, You useless son of a gun. You wouldn't know a good horse if it leapt up between your legs. That's the last horse you'll ever get from me. Several days later, Robert's phone rang. A voice on the other end said, Hello, Mr. Gray here, Joe Gray. He went on, I was having lunch with Mr. Williams yesterday. He was complaining about you. But from what I heard, you must be the only honest trainer I've ever heard of. Well, I know that Panama Buck horse of his wasn't any good, and I just want to take a flyer on you. I have this horse I want to send to you. It's called My Blue Heaven. From that point on, things started to turn around for Roberts. He gained a reputation as not only a great trainer, but an honest one. And soon he had more than enough horses to train. Eventually, he would even have the opportunity to train horses for the Queen of England. And It all started from following some wise advice from a mentor who told him always to be honest, even when the price is high. Doing the right thing is always the best thing. And we never have an excuse to compromise. Strong, principled Christian leadership does not compound its initial wrong with a second wrong. We don't allow one impulsive action to lead to two. This is something that I want to incorporate more consistently into my life. I pray this is something that you want to incorporate more consistently in your life. We all make mistakes, but we ought not to compound those mistakes with a second mistake. But Joshua and the leaders of Israel don't make that mistake. They are principled leaders who make the right decision the second time. Now, they've made the right decision, but there's still this problem of the Gibeonites. What would you do? How would you proceed forward? Would you build a wall around their cities now that you've seen that they're in the land of Canaan and just uh, guard them and make sure that they never get out? Would you take hostage some of their leaders and make the people obey you because you have their leaders in captivity? What would you go about doing to be able to handle this problem of the Gibeonites? The text doesn't explicitly say this, but I believe that after failing the first time, that Joshua pursued the Lord and sought his heart the second time. He sought God's direction for this next decision. He summoned the Gibeonites, and he relayed to them a question and then a curse. The question was rhetorical. He asked, why did you deceive us, saying, we are very far from you, when you dwell among us? Verse 22. The curse was specific. He said, now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. Verse 23, this is an amazing pronouncement because of the possibility of subversion by their placement in the worship of God. God allowed the Gibeonites to dwell with the house of Levi and to have access to the tabernacle. This is amazing. But what's even more amazing is the fact that the, this Old Testament scholar, Kiel and Switch, has said that there is no record of the Gibeonites ever inducing Israel into false worship. When You read through the history, you read through the rest of the Old Testament, you see the Gibeonites multiple times, and there's no record of them ever leading the people of God into false worship of other gods. And I believe that God knew that something else would happen when these Gibeonites were engaged in this intimate contact with the very heart of the nation of Israel. They would be drawn to the true God rather than these Canaanites leading them to their false gods. You see, they saw this transcendent God of the Israelites, and they desired to know him and to trust him. And this reminds us of something that we discussed a couple weeks ago when we looked at Rahab. You know, with Rahab and with the Gibeonites, both believed that the Lord God was the real God. The fame and the name had extended to them, and they recounted his greatness directly to God's people. Both left their people to join God's people. Both lied. Both proved their loyalty among God's people. Both could not be cast away from the people of God. And later history reveals that the Gibeonites remained close to the worship of God. 400 years later, uh, there's going to be a time where the people of Israel needed a place to store the Ark of the Covenant. And so for 20 years, they left the Ark of the Covenant in one of the cities of the Gibeonites. This is 1 Samuel chapter 6, verses 19 through chapter 7, verse 2. One of David's mighty men, Ishmael, was a Gibeonite. He was one of David's 30 mighty men and a leader among those men. His name literally means Jehovah Hears. When the people of Israel came back from captivity, near the very close of the Old Testament, Nehemiah says that the Gibeonites came back with them and that they helped them rebuild the wall. And this is such a tremendous testimony of grace. You see, God used the sin of Israel when they disobeyed his commandment to destroy them to bring about his good purposes. And nothing will impede the plans of God. God can use anything to bring to himself glory. From this moment in Joshua 9 until the end of time, these Gibeonites will be included in the people of God. This passage should then give us great optimism as people who are trying to pursue the Lord. This is an optimistic passage. No matter how bad we botch things up, no matter how bad we we, we mess things up, we make mistakes, God is in the business of redemption. God is in the business of making things right again. You see, God is doing beautiful things even with our errors. He restores, he renews. He makes dirty things clean. He fixes the broken. We have hope today. If they can be saved, so can we. They were liars. They were rebels against God. And Romans tells us that God, Jesus, died for his enemies. Romans 5, 8 and verse 10. Both Rahab and the Gibeonites came to God imperfectly, and he received them. Rahab left her evil city, and the Gibeonites left their evil confederacy. No one is turned away from the Lord when they are repentant and broken and contrite before him. No one is too far from God's mercy. You are not too far from God's mercy. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 1, says, And Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, see, But those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Jesus is saying he invited the people of Israel to come into his wedding feast, to enjoy his celebration, to enjoy heaven, and they wouldn't come. They just refused. And so in his mercy and in his grace, he turned to other people. He turned to to both good and bad people, he says. He turned to, to us. He turned to Gentiles. He turned to those who are kind of on the complete opposite, outside of God's covenant, and he invited all of us into his wedding feast. He invites all of us into his kingdom. He calls both good and bad. I hope that you see yourself that list of people. I hope that you realize and know that God is calling you to himself. He has mercy for the undeserving, those who should totally be on the outside. He extends mercy to all. I want to conclude our time this morning by giving you some very practical wisdom and a few takeaways. You may be asking yourself, what does wisdom look like? If I'm not going to be deceived, if I'm not going to be like the leaders of Israel, what does wisdom look like? How can I avoid deception? What do I need to do to evade the strategy of the enemy? Well, I've adapted a couple things from Ray Ortland, who was summarizing David Powelson's words. And there's a couple things that we can look at when we try to pursue godly wisdom and counsel. Make God's name, his specific identity clear. In your life, hold yourself accountable to God. Remind yourself of your sinfulness before God. Understand that suffering with God is always meaningful. Turn away from self sufficiency and towards Jesus as Savior. Acknowledge that God's forgiveness of our sins is real. Lead yourself into seeking the Lord as your refuge and strength. Submit to God's will as the final authority. Be led into missional living for God's glory. Recognize your own weakness and inability to change by yourself without the Lord's power. The couple things that we can practically do to pursue godly wisdom Will you pursue wisdom this morning? Will you pray with me now? Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We ask that you would make us like you. We ask that you would give us discernment, give us wisdom, help us to make the right decisions. Our good God, our gracious God, We ask that you would find our sacrifice this morning of praise and thanksgiving to be acceptable in your sight.